And we thank you for your word and the spirit who works through the word. And I pray that you will be our guide and our teacher this evening. That we'll honor you in everything we do and say. And that our focus will be to understand you better. In Jesus' name, amen. So what the Bible is given for <coughs> to uh, help us know God better. Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened that you may know Him better. So I wanted to show you this. If, if you have questions, you can stop me. John 3, 3 and 5. You must be born again. You must be born of the water and the Spirit. That word translated again, there, is used 18 times in the New Testament, and every other place is translated from above. What Jesus is actually saying is, you must be born from above. Now, John, you remember John 3, right? You must be born again. You must be, and Nicodemus. And then John 3, 5, you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. And the very next verse says, flesh produces flesh. Spirit produces spirit. So when he talks about being born of the water, he's talking about flesh, flesh birth. You know, every every woman that's had a baby probably knows that the is the baby's surrounded by water in the womb, and then when the water breaks, the baby comes out through that. Every creation of God is through water. Second Peter. 3.5, God created the universe out of water and by means of water. So God uses water to create stuff. Water is totally unique. I've got an article. If you're interested, email me at mbarrier at Dallas. This is a temporary email, I think, but dallas.edu. That's an M. That's not a very good M. And you can ask me for, I've got a hundred articles that are all about one page. And if you want them, happy to send them, if you'll read them. But uh, I've got one on uh, water, just water. And it is the the nature of water. I don't know if you're aware of this, but water expands from 39.2 degrees Fahrenheit, it expands as it gets hotter and expands as it gets colder. It's the only thing in the universe that does that. It breaks its atomic number. By its atomic number, it's supposed to be gas, two gas. I mean, you know, hydrogen and oxygen. It's supposed to be two gases. Uh, up until it is minus 142 degrees below zero. And then it's supposed to be a liquid for six degrees. 
to 148. That's what his molecular weight says. Scientists can't explain why water is a liquid. It's totally unique. The only thing that existed in the universe before the Word spoke. Go back and look at Genesis. Spirit of God brooding over the waters. The water and Spirit are always connected. Always. Jesus says you must be born of the water and of the Spirit in John 3, 5. Must be born again, but every other use of that word is translated from above. In fact, later in that ver in that chapter, Jesus says, He who is from above knows all things, talking about himself. Okay. So, Jesus analogy. Physical birth and spiritual birth. What is it that has to encounter the egg, the ovum? for us to have spiritual birth. I mean, physical birth. What is it that the uh, egg has to receive? You know what it is. The sperm. When the egg receives the sperm, what do we call that? Conception. Correct. What happens after conception? Nine months of growth, development. And you think of all the hundreds of thousands of reactions going on inside the mother. The liver of the baby is, is doing 5,000 chemical reactions all the time for nine months. And after the baby's born, it keeps going on. So what happens, what do we call the end of the growth period? Birth. Duh. You know, this is something Jesus knew we understood physical way better than spiritual. He said, I tell you physical things you don't understand, Nicodemus. What will you do if I tell you about heavenly things? You know, you won't get it. So birth, what happens after birth? I'll give you a hint, more growth. At least you hope. You go from milk to solid food. The Bible talks about desiring the sincere milk of the Word, Peter says. Paul says you need milk, not solid food, because you're immature to the Corinthians. So <clears throat> it's just like physical birth. What's the aim of the process? Maturity. What's the end of the process? The E A T H. <laughs> That's it. D O L. Okay, so there we understand this pretty well, don't we? The physical. But what about the spiritual? What is it that the human heart has to receive for life to take place? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God or the Word of Christ. So the Word, 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul says, I fathered you by the gospel. Uh, Peter says, you've been born again 
First Peter chapter 1. Born again by imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. So our birth begins with the heart receiving the Word. Now, was the heart alive? Yeah, it was. Was the Word alive? Yes. But when those two come together, it's just like the sperm and the ovum. It's conception. What's the conception on the spiritual plane? What is it when the heart receives the Word? Great big idea. Starts with F. Faith. Yeah. That's that's conception in the spirit realm. And then after that, growth. After that, birth, what corresponds? Baptism, passing through the water. See, when God created Israel, He created Israel through the Red Sea. When He brought Joshua and all the others into the Holy Land, they went through the Jordan. Uh, When every baby is born, He comes out through the water. When every Christian is born, He goes through the water. So water is God's creative agent. So after baptisms comes more growth. What's the end of the process? What's the aim? The aim is maturity again. And the end is eternal life. Now, let me ask you two questions. Number one, where does life begin? Well, yeah, but looking at this thing here, where does life start? Got to say, somewhere in here, got to be consistent. Because we don't like abortion. And the reason we don't like it is we believe that life begins here. Mm-hmm. At conception. Right. The father gives life to the son. The mother bears the son. Okay, then the second question is, where does fellowship in the family begin? It's got to be here. But the real fellowship, our kids now, I can share theological concepts and all kinds of things with our kids. Before, you know, while they were in the growth process, we could share a little bit. I could tell them about Jesus, and they could understand that. But to get into theology or philosophy. But now, my son and I will get together and discuss Calvinism and, you know, all the different views of, of, that we struggle with. So, life begins here, and sharing in the family begins here. Now, when when does it, when is the person saved? Got to be when you have faith. Scripture says it over and over and over and over. And then, baptism is the seal of that faith. That's the beginning proof that you're saved.
Genesis uh, oops, 15, 6. Started to put 3.15. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and he thought it to him for righteousness. So when you have faith, God sees that, and he considers you righteous. Then, the next thing that happens after you have repented and confessed your sins, you are baptized. And then if you don't continue living and growing, you know, who knows what happens. Bad things can happen. Yeah. So I want you to see this because I think it kind of answers the question, where exactly does baptism fit in? It's kind of like physical birth. It fits in as the birth process. But the whole continuum is necessary. It's not a part here that you, this is absolute and nothing else counts. There are churches that teach that. There are churches that teach this is absolute and nothing else counts, which is baloney. Without faith, all this other stuff's irrelevant. Because without conception, you don't have a, a living, growing being. You with me? Lindsay, you awake? Okay. All right. Any question on this before we get into the... Don't erase it? No, I have to erase this end to write on the board. That's all right. Okay, let's go to Zephaniah, the prophet in the Old Testament. As I said uh, last night when... Um, when uh, Reader's Digest did the condensed Bible, they left out Zephaniah. And the main reason they left out Zephaniah, that's a good idea. See, there's so much that connects with this. I wish, wish I had time to go into all those scriptures. Like Hebrews 10, 22. Uh, our, you know, we draw near to God, our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So it's a picture of the inner and outer work of baptism. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, he says, You got yourselves washed. You were justified. You were sanctified by the Holy Spirit of our God. So the washing and the Spirit are connected. Titus 3, 5. What's the matter? What is it, Leah? <laughs> click, 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 click. Well... Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not by works of righteousness that we've done, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. So the washing and the Spirit are always connected in Scripture. You look at Jesus' own baptism. Here's a guy who was born of the Holy Spirit, but when he turns 30, he is driven to John to be baptized. And when he's baptized, the Holy Spirit comes down on him, and the Father speaks. So the whole Trinity is involved in baptism. For us, it's obedience to the Father's command. And for Jesus, it was a second uh, gift of the Spirit, a second filling of the Spirit. 
And for us, I think it is too, because I believe every baby is born with the Spirit. Maybe not in the same way Jesus was born of the Spirit, but then later you can be born again, born from above, born by the Holy Spirit. So, you know, there's so much in this that if you go back to the Scripture and take a look at it, I think you'll see it's pretty clear. And the fact that this word actually means from above rather than again, Nicodemus obviously understands it as again. Uh, Jesus intentionally using double entendre to, to shake him up, to shake him out of the idea that he understands. And you remember at the end of the discussion, he says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. If I tell you earthly things you can't understand, how can you understand heavenly things? And then he says, he who is from above knows all things. Same word. But Peter says we're born again. Palingenesia, the Greek word. We are born again by the imperishable seed of the Word of God. Okay, Zephaniah. The word of Yahweh, which came to Zephaniah. Um, Zephaniah was written sometime around 630 to 600 B.C. So we're getting close to the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 586. The final, ultimate destruction. And by the way, Jesus is born in 5 B.C. Our calendars are off five years. So this is actually 581 B.C. But, you know, we use, we use the standard calendar. So we talk about... 586 B.C. He's predicting God's judgment. And it's going to be judgment not just on Israel, but judgment on everything. Judgment everywhere. The key verse is probably chapter 2, verse 3. Seek Yahweh, all you gentle of the earth, who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of Yahweh's wrath. So the judgment is always seen as a day of wrath, uh, but it's also a day of gentleness to his people. But now, because of what's happening, because Jerusalem is in deep trouble, they are still worshiping idols. They have turned away from God. This is the thing that is tough about the prophets. Let me recommend a book to you. The book is by Phil Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y. And the book is entitled, The Bible Jesus Read. And he looks at the entire Old Testament from the point of view of Jesus growing up in a yeshiva going to school in a yeshiva, in a, in a uh, school all the way up to age 24. All the Jews do that. Uh, and he sees Jesus learning all the word that he had originally given to, to Moses and to the others. Uh, it's, it's part of the mystery of the incarnation. We don't understand why that is. Uh, we don't understand how he had to learn what he had already given. 
And when you look at his life and you you hear him pray to the Father in chapter 14, uh, chapter 17, he says, Father, return to me the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. And I don't know if he remembers that or if he has learned that from the Scripture or if God has taught him that. But like he said, he who comes from above knows all things. Basically, only one thing he doesn't know, and that's when he's coming back, because that's in his father's, his father's hand. So look at this: seek the Lord. Seek. What's that word mean? Look for him. Keep after him. Come close to him. We don't use the word seek anymore, except for hide and seek. You ever stop thinking about that? It's not a good word anymore. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. It means to look for it, to go after it. And so look for the Lord. Um, Search for His face. Come to know Him. And uh, if you have upheld justice and righteousness, if you have upheld teaching people right, and keeping your relationship with God right, then you will look for humility for yourself. And it may be that you will be hidden in the the day of the Lord's anger. The scourge might pass you by. You look at Daniel and Ezekiel and these guys that were taken out in the first deportation. They were searching for the Lord early on, and God called them and got a hold of them up in Babylon. And they were the ones who ministered to the king, Daniel, and to the slaves of Babylon, uh, Ezekiel, up in Babylon. So that's that's probably the essence of this. It's a book about uh, judgment. It's about the destruction of Israel, and if you read the last chapter, you'll also see that it's about the re- reinstatement of Israel, uh, the restoration of Israel. But God's going to punish her first. Jeremiah and Isaiah both say He's going to send them away for 70 years, and they will come back speaking another language. And they will come back unable to understand their own Scriptures. You read the book of Ezra, you'll see that they read the Scripture to the people, but they couldn't understand it. They stood out in the sun and cried with their families. And then it was interpreted to them, translated to them into Aramaic, which is their language now. Only the scholars knew Hebrew. By the time you get after the exile, the 70 years. Look at chapter 3, the first words. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted. Woe to the oppressing city. Talking about Jerusalem. She has not obeyed His voice. She has not received correction. She's not trusted in Yahweh. She is not drawn near to her God. Draw near. That is a court phrase. When you ask the judge, can we approach? 
That's the word that's used here. Can we draw near to the judge? And maybe God will show mercy on us. So, any question here? The key verse may be uh, 2-3, which I read earlier. All the, all the area around Jerusalem will be forsaken, and then Jerusalem will also. Okay. Let's go on to Nahum. Zephaniah means the Lord treasures or the Lord hides. Zephaniah, Zephaniah was treasured up by the Lord. He was hidden by the Lord from the terrible destruction that was to come. But uh, Nahum means compassion or comfort. <clears throat> so we're in Nahum. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. So after Nahum, you have to back up a little bit. I'm looking at it in the order of time as much as possible. Nahum is also a short prophecy. Three chapters. And he's not talking about judgment on Judah. He's really excited to point out the judgment on Nineveh. But the name Nahum is based on the same root as the name Noah. And the New Testament town... Capernaum means the town of Nahum. Capernaum. So Nahum's grave was there. His tomb was there. Nahum, all these words mean comfort. God comforts His people. He comforts His people by Nahum attacking the people of Nineveh. And this whole prophecy in the, in the uh, three chapters is judgment on Nineveh. The key verse in Nahum is verse 3 of chapter 1. Notice how he starts his prophecy. The burden against Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite from Elkosh. God is jealous, Yahweh avenges, Yahweh avenges and is furious. Yahweh will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit. And he's talking there about Nineveh. Yahweh has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And he describes God in a powerful way as a theophany. A theophany means that God comes and is seen by people. Psalm 18 is a theophany. It says the Lord rides on the wings of the cherub. He rides on the wings of the wind. He's talking about storms. 
I love to see storms. I don't know if you're like me. Uh, any of you remember the passage in Revelation that says um, the seven thunders spoke? And he said, I started to write it down, and a voice came and said, don't write that down. The seven thunders. Well, that's from Psalm 29, where it says, the voice of Yahweh seven times. And it's describing a storm that's so powerful, it causes the mountains to quake from uh, the thunder and the lightning. It, it causes the trees, the great cedars of Lebanon, the things that are seen as the highest things, to be crushed and broken. And he said, the, uh, the voice of God shakes the desert, you know. And so God's voice is the seven thunders. When he becomes angry, we know it. And when you look at a storm like the one we had the other day, I don't know if you've been across the bridge, but that river is higher than I have ever seen it. And I said that to Harold, and he said, it's higher than we've ever seen it. Hmm? Oh, wait till tomorrow. It's supposed to rain again tomorrow. Oh, oh, upstream comes down. Oh, my goodness. I'll tell you, nature, you know, God controls nature, but we can't control that at all. They, they predict that someday man will be able to control the elements. But I think it's just, it's gone too far. I think it's going to be very difficult for us to take over. But he comes with an overflowing flood, verse 8 says. He will make a complete end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. In other words, everybody in Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Remember, you remember about Nineveh, don't you? When we studied Jonah, they repented. And that was about what? Okay, that was about, about 100, 160 years before Nineveh repented. It didn't take them too long to fall back away from God. And so God is going to destroy Nineveh. Now, what, what he's predicting here is that the Babylonians, who are now rising to power, will conquer Nineveh and destroy them. Nineveh was known for all the evil they did. Babylon was known for all the idols they had. Uh, all their names, like Nebuchadnezzar, Nebo is one of their gods. Nebuchadnezzar is named after him. Uh, you remember uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Those three got names from the gods of Babylon. Their real names were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, the Hebrew names. So here's the Lord. Hmm? I didn't hear you. Yeah, they were. They were the original terrorists. They and the Scythians were very destructive people. The Scythians supposedly would cut the top of a person's head off and drink their blood out of that skull cap. Uh, not, not nice people is what I'm trying to say. And the Ninevites are kind of like that. The Babylonians then, after they conquered Nineveh, 
the Babylonians built up the city of Babylon. And if you've never studied the city of Babylon, you need to go and look that up. Babylon had three concentric walls, one inside the other. And in between all the walls, there was uh, water, uh, alligators, all that kind of stuff. And uh, they, they bragged, no one can ever conquer this city. The walls were, are you ready, 300 feet high, 30 stories, built by the great kings of Babylon. 30 stories high, 200 feet wide at the bottom. Uh, there's, a, there's a big study on, on uh, Babylon. If you look it up on a good encyclopedia of the Bible, you can read all about the, the structure of the city. They brag no one can conquer it. It's kind of like saying no one can sink. God can't even sink the Titanic. Did you know about that? That they actually said God himself can't sink the Titanic. An ice cube can, you know, but God can't. That's, <laughs> that's arrogance. Well, these people were arrogant. And the Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and the Persians, and it was done very easily in one night. The river that flowed through the city, they dammed it up and shunted it off to the side and marched in in the riverbank and took over the city. Daniel tells that story. Yeah, I mean, I don't care how strong you are, you can lose everything. And the Medes and the Persians took over. Daniel had already predicted this in chapter 2 and chapter 7 of his book. And then Daniel probably prophesied somewhere between 70 and 90 years to the kings of Babylon. He worked with the Medes, then he worked with the Persians. Before that, he had worked with Nebuchadnezzar and the, the Babylonian kings. So woe to the bloody city, verse 3, chapter 3, I'm sorry. It's all full of lies and robberies. Its victims never depart. The noise of the whip and the noise of rattling wheels and galloping horses and clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear, a multitude of slain. See, the Babylonians conquered them. In 612 B.C. So this has to be written before 612. That's when Nineveh fell. And Nebuchadnezzar was the guy that got him. And Nebuchadnezzar ruled in Babylon for a long time. I'm sorry? Is that right? Now, see, that's something I didn't know. What was his dad's name, you know? You know, Onabopolassar? Okay. I've heard of him, but I didn't know that he was his dad. Okay. Thank you. Boy, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have somebody that knows this stuff better than I do. Uh Six oh five. Okay. 
He was a brilliant strategist. Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know if you know this, he was converted to God. In fact, the next several kings were all converted to God because of Daniel. And Josephus says that when Cyrus became king, Daniel was probably 90 or 100 years old. He brought, Josephus says, he brought the scroll of Isaiah in and showed Cyrus that Isaiah had called his name 117 years before he was born. Cyrus will be my shepherd. He will be the one to set my people free. And when Cyrus read that, he said, Yahweh is calling me to set free not only the Jews, but all the slaves. And so he set free all the countries that he had conquered, uh, that, that Nebuchadnezzar and Xerxes and the others had conquered. Okay, so Nahum prophesies destruction in Nineveh. That's basically it. He says in verse 18 of the last chapter, Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. And upon whom... Has your wickedness passed eternally or continually? They were so wicked that God punished them by sending the Babylonians to destroy them. Next prophet, Habakkuk. Havkuk in Hebrew meaning to hug, to embrace. It's like he hugs his people and holds them up. The question that bothered him more than anything else is the question that bothers the guy that wrote Psalm 73. Why do good people get hurt, and why do evil people cause it? Why do you allow this? I've often wondered that myself. I remember uh, reading about a computer glitch that let a serial murderer out of jail and in the trip from San Antonio to Dallas he kidnapped a 14 year old girl basically destroyed her raped her sodomized her just destroyed her and when they finally caught him they brought him into Lou Sterrett Justice uh, the place there where uh, the big jail is and that little girl's parents and brothers and sisters and cousins and uncles and aunts were out there screaming at him. You know, my view is do what they did in the Old Testament. Turn him over to them. I mean, that's how they carried out justice. In the Old Testament, they, they had a redeemer of blood who was one of the strongest men in the family. And if anybody mistreated somebody in that family, he had to deal with that guy. But he also brought the rest of the relatives. You could you could uh, clear up Chicago 
by putting every block in charge of justice and putting the leaders of that block, the, the best people on the block, in charge of justice. And see what happens when they start shooting your kids. They go out and get them and bring them in and have court right there out in public. That's what they did in Israel. Israel never had jails. They didn't need them because it was eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, blow for blow, stripe for stripe, life for life. If somebody abused somebody, he got abused. Anyway, Habakkuk, <coughs> there is a complete commentary of Habakkuk that came from the Dead Sea Scrolls, written about 250 B.C. You can look up the commentary on Habakkuk and read about it. The key verse, and I want to emphasize that this is one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. In chapter 2, the key verse is what the book of Romans and Galatians is based on in the New Testament. Chapter 2, start reading of verse 2. He said, correct me and I will answer when I am corrected. In verse 1. In verse 2, Yahweh answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he who may run who reads it. For the vision is not yet, but for an appointed time. At the end it will speak, it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. But the just, the righteous, will live by his faith. You hear that? Paul leaves out the word his in Romans. Because it's ambiguous, it can mean by God's faithfulness or by the man's faithfulness. And so he says, the righteous by faith shall live. The order of those words in Hebrew and Greek is significant. Righteousness The righteous by faith shall live. Depends on where you put the comma. If you say the person is righteous, he will live by his faith. If you put the comma over here, the one who is righteous by faith will live. Two things come from faith. Righteousness and life. Righteousness first. Soon, when you believe, God counts you righteous, and then your life begins to come into harmony with what you believe. And that's what he's saying here. The proud is puffed up in the deceit of his heart. He is evil. But the righteous man, by faith, shall live. By his faith and by God's faithfulness. The word faith, the Hebrew word emunah, we get our word amen out of that. 
Uh, it literally means um, faithfulness. It means reliability. It means trustworthiness. If a person, you know, is a faithful church member, what do we mean by that? He's always there. He's dependable. If a man's faithful to his wife or a woman is faithful to her husband, we know what that means. Well, God is faithful, and He wants us to be faithful, but we're not saved by our faithfulness. We're saved by faith, and then we become faithful. Does that make sense? We improve. Okay. That's the most important verse in the book. Habakkuk is really concerned about why the wicked mistreat the righteous. And he asked God that question, and throughout the, the book it's discussed back and forth between him and God. But my favorite section is chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the only chapter in any other book that was included in the worship services of the temple. And it's written and put together like a psalm. You see the word Selah in there? The third verse, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. That's only in the Psalms and Habakkuk 3. And ladies, there is an incredible book written by a woman named Hannah Hernard entitled Hind's Feet on High Places. Hind is a, a male deer, a buck, we would call him today. Uh, a heart is a female deer, and a hind is a male deer. And when it talks about hind's feet on high places, he look at the end of the third chapter. He talks about the Lord being displeased. In verse 16, he said, When I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled in myself. This is very much like Psalm 119. There's a verse there that says, I tremble in fear of your word. That I might rest in the day of trouble when he comes up to the people. He will invade them with his troops. Talking about uh, what's going to happen in Babylon, uh, in, in Jerusalem when Babylon comes in. This is probably written sometime right before the destruction of Jerusalem, but it's hard to date this book. Though the fig tree may not blossom or fruit be on the vines, the labor of the olive may fall. The fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut out from the fold, there will be no herd in the stalls. Yet I'll rejoice in Yahweh. I will sing in the God of my salvation. See, that, that's Selah there. That sounds like a, a psalm. Yahweh Elohim. It actually says, Yahweh Elohim is my strength. I will make, he will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on the high places. And notice it was adapted to chief musician with stringed instruments. How are we doing for time? we still got ten minutes. Let me do one more and see if we can stop. 
Joel Amos Obadiah, Jonah Micah Nam, Obadiah. Obadiah is a fairly short prophecy, as you can see, one chapter. The key verse in Obadiah, probably 121, though there are other possibilities. 121 says... Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion and judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Esau. Who was Esau? Remember what his name means? Harry. Not H-A-R-R-Y, but H-A-I-R-Y. Hirsute. You know, that's another word for Harry. Uh, Esau was named Harry when he was born, but after he grew up, they called him Edom, because Edom means red, and he was red-headed. He had he was completely red, really. He had red hair all over his body, so they called him Red, just like we do. And so here is uh, here is Edom being destroyed by God. This is the prediction. Now, Obadiah means uh, a servant of Yahweh. And Obadiah probably is writing around, well, 586 B.C. is when Jerusalem was destroyed. And I think he's writing after that and saying, now it's your turn, Edom. You're going to be destroyed. Esau... They were all cousins. Edom's capital city was Petra, a huge rock fortress. And he says, you think you'll be safe up on your rock fortress. But when Nebuchadnezzar comes, his army will surround you and just wait. And that's what happened. They came and they waited and waited and waited until the people in Petra were starving to death. And if they came out and, and surrendered, Nebuchadnezzar would give them their life. But if they continued to rebel, he would uh, destroy them, kill them. Here's a description of what Edom thinks about itself. Start with verse 2 of chapter well, the only chapter. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You will be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rocks, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says Yahweh. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would cut them off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? 
he's telling them that Esau, the, the es- Edom's going to be destroyed. Here's the reason they're destroyed. They, when the when the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, the Edomites were on the Babylonian side, and they took a bunch of Jews as slaves and took them back. Judah, Judahites as slaves. It says, oh, how Esau will be searched out. His hidden treasures will be sought after. All the men in your confederacy will force you to the border. The men of peace with you will deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread will lay a trap for you. No one's aware of it. Will I not in that day, says Yahweh, even destroy the wise men from Edom, understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, will be dismayed. The end of everyone from the mountains of Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So he, he is like Nahum was against Nineveh. He has seen the destruction of Jerusalem. And now he's telling them, you're going to be destroyed too, right along with us. But the people of Esau, the people of Edom rejoiced in Jerusalem's destruction. But they were greatly frustrated and uh, finally destroyed by the Babylonians. Verse 20 says, And the captives of this army of the children of Israel will possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, all the way up to Tyre and Sidon. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Shepherod will possess the cities of the south. In other words, they're going to come back. The Jews, the prophets all predict, even though you're destroyed, you will all come back. Now the next, the last night we're together, the last uh, three prophets are pretty amazing. Uh This guy here, Obadiah, is prophesying during the exile. This is actually after the Jews were taken out. During this whole time, Jeremiah has prophesied probably 40 or 50 years in Jerusalem. He's been treated terribly. Uh, When he, at the end of his life, I may have mentioned this too, he was taken down to Egypt and they, the people who took him worshipped an idol. They were the ones that killed Nebuchadnezzar's governor that he had set up. And the, this is the third time Nebuchadnezzar came back. He was so angry. These men came and said, We want to kill Gedaliah, Nebuchadnezzar's governor. What do you think, Jeremiah? He said, If you do, he'll come here and flay your skin off your bodies. And they said, We don't believe you. So they went and killed Gedaliah, and then they heard that, that the Nebuchadnezzar and his army were coming a third time. They fled to Egypt, and they took Jeremiah with him, with them, forced him to go. This is not in the book of Jeremiah. This is in Jewish lore, in the rabbinical teaching. And when they got to uh, Egypt, they began worshiping an idol, and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Jeremiah confronted them and convicted them about worshiping the idol. And instead of being convicted and repenting, they stoned him to death in Egypt. Uh, 
Uh, Jeremiah lived through the entire destruction of Jerusalem. He may have written, if he didn't write it, somebody very close to Jeremiah, maybe Baruch, wrote Lamentations. You know, Lamentations is lamenting, crying over the destruction of Jerusalem. He, he pictures Jerusalem as a woman who'd been raped, her skirts pulled up over her head. The virgin daughter of Jerusalem has been raped and destroyed. Um, but Jeremiah was greatly respected by Nebuchadnezzar. They admired each other. Jeremiah told the people, if you'll just go out and surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, at least you'll have your lives. But they didn't do it. So a third of them died with fire, a third of them died with the sword, and a third of them were taken captive, just like Ezekiel predicted. Uh, Ezekiel predicted that in Babylon. And Ezekiel, we didn't have time for Ezekiel because this is for the major prophets. This is a minor prophet. But Ezekiel chapter 24, God said, I'm going to take away the apple of your eye. Your wife will die tomorrow. And then he interpreted that and said, I want you to understand how I feel Jerusalem will fall tomorrow. And so don't eat the bread of mourners. Don't go weeping in the street. When your wife dies, go tell them what I said, that Jerusalem fell today. These guys lived through. The Germans call it the Er Leibniz, the lived-throughness of God's experience with His people. You know, Hosea married a prostitute, just as Israel was a prostitute under God. Now, this goes all the way through the prophets. Hosea's wife die, or, uh, Ezekiel's wife dies because Jerusalem falls. God. Go back to the Garden of Eden. He named all the animals and nothing was found for him. So God hypnotized him, put him to sleep, took a portion out of his side. The word rib is not in there. It just says a portion. And built that into a woman. And so finally everything in the creation has a, has a mate except God. God needs a bride. And the purpose of creating Adam and Eve, and the purpose of creating Israel, and the purpose of creating the church is to give God a bride. Okay? I'm sorry? Oh, Ishmael and the guys that killed Gedaliah and then ran to Egypt after they stoned Jeremiah to death. Nebuchadnezzar had sent a contingent of his army down there to take them, tied them to stakes, sliced them down the middle, and split their skin off them while they were still quivering alive. Now that, folks, is what flaying is. What a tragedy. But they deserved it. They had killed God's own prophet who had been with them for 40 or 50 years. Never had one convert, as far as we know, unless Baruch could be considered a convert, his, his scribe.
I'm sorry? I can't hear you with the noise up here. Huh? Yes, he did. Seven years? <laughs> a brief moment. The true God. You know, there was a, a, a historian out in the world, a historian that wrote about Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. He said Nebuchadnezzar was up on the roof of his castle looking out over his great country, you know, the hanging hanging gardens of Babylon and so on. He said, look at great Babylon that I have created. And this guy, this Barosus, this historian, wrote that a demon came and took over his mind and drove him out among people. Lycanthropy is what it's called, wolfman. He's a, he's a werewolf. That's our English word for it. He's a lycanthrope, meaning he's a wolf man. Anthrop- anthropos is man, and lycan is wolf. And so he sees himself as a wild animal. He's lost it. He loses his kingdom. And for seven years he goes out and is baptized. That, that word is used there, by the dew of heaven. And his hair got so long it looked like eagle feathers matted together. And his, his uh, fingernails got so long it looked like the talons of a bird. Seven years. Daniel had already predicted this. Remember the tree that was cut down and a brass band was... I've always liked brass bands. But anyway, a brass band was put around it. And uh, he said, that's you. You'll be taken away from your kingdom. But God will reinstate you. Another image for that was the lion in Daniel chapter 7. The lion that stood upright like a man and was given a human heart. That's a picture of Daniel, uh, from Daniel, of Nebuchadnezzar receiving his mind back again. Yeah, there was, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was converted. There were several others that were converted. Yeah. He was mistreated. He was mistreated worse than any other prophet for a longest period of time and then stoned to death. This is what happened to the prophets. When Jesus condemned the, the, the Pharisees, he said, All the blood from righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah will come upon this generation. And in 70 AD, it happened. God paid him back. So we do Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Next time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. There's so much to learn. Thank you that even in bad days we have hope. Even in bad times we know you're still in charge. Help us, Father, to stay faithful, to keep our faith in you, to hang on to you, to love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.